Chapter 11, Parts 1 and 2 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 11. The Decline and Downfall of the Athenian Empire. Part 1. New Political Combinations with Argos. Sparta had good reasons for desiring peace. The prospect in the Peloponnesus gave her no little concern. Mantinea had been gradually enlarging her boundaries southwards, and that could not be permitted. Elis was sulky and hostile, because in a quarrel with Leprione, Sparta had supported her rival. Far more serious than these minor vexations was the circumstance that the Treaty of Peace with Argos was about to expire. It had been a consideration of supreme importance for Sparta, when she entered upon the war with Athens, that for the next ten years she was secure on the side of her old Peloponnesian rival. But there was now the chance that Athens and Argos might combine, and, as Argos had not agreed to renew the treaty, there was urgent need to come to terms with Athens. These reasons which recommended the peace to Sparta ought to have prevented Athens from consenting to it. The settlement was a complete failure. Not only did the Corinthians and the other chief allies refuse to accede to it, but the signatories found themselves unable to carry out the terms they had agreed upon. The Chalcidians refused to surrender Amphipolis, and the Spartans could not compel them. Athens, therefore, justly declined to carry out her part of the bargain. As a way out of this deadlock, the Spartans, impatient at all costs to recover the Sphacterian prisoners, conceived the device of entering into a defensive alliance with their old enemy. This proposal, warmly supported by Nicias, was accepted, and the captives were at length restored, Athens still retaining Pylos and Cythera. This approximation between Sparta and Athens led directly to the dissolution of the Peloponnesian League. Corinth, Mantinea, and Elis, considering themselves deserted by their leader, broke with her, and formed an alliance with Argos, who now enters upon the scene. The Chalcidians of Thrace joined. There was, however, little reason to fear or hope that the intimacy between Sparta and Athens could be long or strong, seeing that Athens insisted on keeping Cythera and Pylos until Amphipolis should be restored to her, and the other states should accede to the peace. In the following year these unstable political combinations were upset by a change in the balance of parties at Athens, and by the triumph of the anti-Athenian war party at Sparta. The opposition to Nicias was led by Hyperbolus, 
a man of the same class and same kind of ability as Cleone, a comic poet, and no statesman was such a favourite butt of comedy as Hyperbolus, described him as a Cleone in hyperbole. But the party was now strengthened by the accession of a young man of high birth, brilliant intellect, and no morality, Alcibiades, son of Cleinias. Educated by his kinsman Pericles in democratic traditions, he was endowed by nature with extraordinary beauty and talents, by fortune with the inheritance of wealth which enabled him to indulge an inordinate taste for ostentation. He had shocked his kinsfolk and outraged the city not by his dissoluteness, but by the incredible insolence which accompanied it. The numerous anecdotes of his petulance, which no one dared to punish, need not all be true, but they illustrate the fact that undue respect for persons of birth and wealth had not disappeared in the Athenian democracy. Alcibiades was feared and courted, and pursued by lovers of both sexes. He fought with bravery at Delium, where his life was saved by his friend Socrates the philosopher. It was a celebrated friendship. Intellectual power and physical courage were the only points of likeness between them. Socially and morally, as well as in favour and fortune, they were as contrasted as two men well could be. Though Socrates took no interest in politics, he was an unequalled dialectician, and an aspiring statesman found his society a good training for the business of political debate. Alcibiades indeed had not in him the stuff of which true statesmen are made. He had not the purpose, the perseverance, or the self-control. An extremely able and dexterous politician he certainly was, but he wanted that balance which a politician, whether scrupulous or unscrupulous, must have in order to be a great statesman. Nor had Alcibiades any sincere belief in the democratic institutions of his country, still less any genuine sympathy with the advanced democratic party whose cause he espoused. When he said, as Thucydides makes him say, at Sparta, at a later stage of his career, that democracy is acknowledged folly, he assuredly expressed what he felt in his heart. Yet at this time his ultimate aim may have been to win such a place as that which Pericles had held, and rule his country without being formally her ruler. At all events, he saw his way to power through war and conquest. The accession of Alcibiades was particularly welcome to the Radical Party, not so much on account of his family connections, his diplomatic and rhetorical talents, but because he had a military training and could perform the functions of strategos. Unfitness for the post of strategos was, as we have seen, the weak point in the position of men like Hyperbolus and Cleone. When Alcibiades was elected as Strategos, and Nicias was not re-elected, the prospects of the Radical Party looked brighter. The change was immediately felt. 
Athens entered into an alliance with Argos and her allies Elis and Mantinea for a hundred years, and the treaty was sealed by a joint expedition against Epidorus. Footnote. A fragment of the stone on which this treaty, given in full by Thucydides, was written, was found near the Dionysiac Theatre. End of footnote. Sparta assisted Epidorus, and then the Athenians declared that the Lacedaemonians had broken the peace. The new policy of Athens received a check by the return of Nicias to power, and the refusal of the people to re-elect the adventurous Alcibiades. But the alliance with Argos was not broken off. Sparta, alarmed by the activity of Argos against Epidorus, resolved to strike a blow, and sent forth in summer an army under King Aegis to invade the Argive land. The allies gathered at Phlius, and Corinth, which had no longer any reason to hold aloof, sent a contingent. The Argive troops under Thrasyllus, with their Mantinean and Elean allies, were in every way inferior to the enemy, yet, concentrating close to Nemea, they could easily defend the chief pass from the north into the plain of Argos. But Aegis outmaneuvered them. Sending the Boeotians along the main road by Nemea, he led his own troops by a difficult mountain path from the west, and descended into the plain by the valley of the Inacus. The Corinthians and Phlyasians he sent over by another pass. Thus the Argives were hemmed in between two armies, and cut off from their city. They left their position near Nemea, and came down into the plain. The Boeotians appear not to have followed. The soldiers of both Thrasyllus and Aegis were confident of victory, but the generals were of another mind. Aegis, as well as his antagonist, considered his position precarious, and consequently they came to terms, concluding a truce for four months. On both sides there was a loud outcry against the generals, and Thrasyllus was nearly stoned to death by his disappointed soldiers. Athenian forces now arrived at Argos under Lachis and Nicostratus, accompanied by Alcibiades as an ambassador. Stepping beyond his instructions, Alcibiades induced the allies to disregard the truce, on the technical ground that, not having been accepted by the Athenians, it was not valid. The allied troops accordingly crossed the mountains into Arcadia and won Orcominus. The men of Elis then proposed to move against their own particular foes, the people of Leprion, and being outvoted, they deserted their allies and marched home. The army, thus weakened by the loss of three thousand hoplites, was obliged to hasten southward to protect Mantinea, against which the Lacedaemonians under Aegis, along with the men of Tegea, had meanwhile come forth. And now, at length, a great battle was fought. The exact numbers are not known, but must have approached ten thousand on each side. Coming round the hill of Scopi, 
the spur of Mount Menelus, which projects into the plain between Tegea and Mantinea, at the point where the territories of the two cities met, the Lacedaemonians found the enemy drawn up for fight, and proved their excellent discipline by a rapid formation in the face of the hostile line. They won the battle, but their success was endangered and its completeness diminished by a hitch which occurred at the outset. There was a tendency in all Greek armies, when engaging, to push towards the right, each man fearing for his own exposed right side and trying to edge under the screen of his neighbour's shield. Consequently, an army was always inclined to outflank the left wing of the enemy by its own right. On this occasion, Aegis observed that the Mantineans, who were on the right wing of the foe, stretched far beyond his own left wing, and fearing it would be disastrously outflanked and surrounded, gave a signal to the troops of his extreme left to make a lateral movement further towards the left, and at the same time he commanded two captains on his right to move their divisions round to fill up the gap thus created. The first order was executed, but the two captains refused to move. The result was that the extreme left was isolated and utterly routed, while a band of one thousand chosen Argives dashed through the gap. On the right, however, the Lacedaemonians were completely victorious over the Athenians and other allies. The Athenians would have been surrounded and utterly at the mercy of their foes if Aegis had not recalled his troops to assist his discomfited left wing. Both Lachys and Nicostratus fell. The Lacedaemonians returned home and celebrated the feast of the Carnean Apollo in joy. The victory did much to restore the prestige of Sparta, which had dwindled since the disaster of Sracteria. The public opinion of Greece had pronounced Sparta to be stupid and inert. It now began to reconsider its judgment. But the victory had direct political results. It transformed the situation in the Peloponnesus. One of those double changes which usually went together, a change in the constitution and a change in foreign policy, was brought about at Argos. The democracy was replaced by an oligarchy, and the alliance with Athens was abandoned for an alliance with Sparta. Mantinea, Elis, and the Achaean towns also went over to the victor. Athens was again isolated. It was probably at this juncture that the advanced democrats in Athens made an attempt to remove from their way the influential man who was their chief opponent, Nicias. It had been due to his counsels that Argos had not been more effectively supported, there was probably a good deal of dissatisfaction at Athens, and when Hyperbolus proposed that a vote of ostracism should be held, he had good grounds to hope that there would be a decision against Nicias, and no apparent reason to fear for himself. He might calculate that most of the supporters of Nicias would vote against the more dangerous Alcibiades. The calculation was so well grounded 
that it missed its mark, for Alcibiades, seeing the risk which threatened him, deserted Hyperbolus and the Democratic Party, and allied himself with Nicias. So it came about that Hyperbolus was ruined by his own machination. All the followers of Nicias and Alcibiades wrote his name on their sherds, and he was banished for ten years. His political career had ended. This was the last case of ostracism at Athens. The institution was not abolished, but it became a dead letter. Henceforward it was deemed a sufficient safeguard for the Constitution that any man who proposed a measure involving a change in any of the established laws was liable to be prosecuted under the law known as the Graphi Paranomon, which it was death to transgress. The new alliance of the pious and punctilious Nicias, champion of peace, with the profane and unstable Alcibiades bent on enterprises of war, was more unnatural than that between the high-born noble and the lamp-maker. But Nicias seems to have been to some small extent aroused from his policy of inactivity. We find him undertaking an expedition against Chalcidice, where nothing had been done since the peace except the capture of Sione, and the execution of all the male inhabitants. Nicias failed in an attempt on Amphipolis, but in the following year an enterprise in the southern Aegean was attended with success. The island of Milos had hitherto remained outside the sea lordship of the Athenians, and Athens, under the influence of Alcibiades, now attacked her. The town of Milos was invested in the summer by land and sea, and surrendered at discretion in the following winter. All the men of military age were put to death, the other inhabitants were enslaved, and the island was colonized by Athenians. The conquest of Milos is remarkable not for the rigorous treatment of the Melians, which is merely another example of the inhumanity which we have already met in the cases of Plataea, Mytilene, Sione, but for the unprovoked aggressions of Athens without any tolerable pretext. By the curious device of constructing a colloquy between Athenian envoys and the Melian government, Thucydides has brought the episode into dramatic relief. In this scene, the Athenians assert in frank and shameless words the law of nature that the stronger should rule over the weaker. This was a doctrine which it was Hellenic to follow, but unusual to enunciate in all its nakedness, and in the negotiations which preceded the blockade, no Athenian spokesman would have uttered the undiplomatic audacities which Thucydides ascribes to them. The historian has artfully used the dialogue to indicate the overbearing spirit of the Athenians, flown with insolence on the eve of an enterprise which was destined to bring signal retribution and humble their city in the dust. Different as Thucydides and Herodotus were in their minds and methods, they had both the same characteristically Hellenic feeling for a situation like this. 
The check of Athens rounded the theme of the younger, as the check of Persia had rounded the theme of the elder historian. And although Nemesis, who moves openly in the pages of Herodotus, is not acknowledged by Thucydides, she seems to have cast a shadow here. During the years immediately succeeding the peace, there are some signs that the Athenians turned their attention to matters of religion, which had perhaps been too much neglected during the war. It may have been in these years that they set about the building of a new temple for Athena and Erechtheus, concerning which we shall hear again at a later stage. It may have been at this time that Asclepius, the god of healing, came over with his snake from Epidorus and established himself in a sanctuary under the south slope of the Acropolis. And it was probably soon after the peace that a resolution was carried imposing a new tax upon the fruits of the earth for the maintenance of the worship of Eleusis. The farmers of Attica were required to pay one six-hundredth of every medimnus of barley, and one twelve-hundredth of every medimnus of wheat. The same burden was imposed upon the allies, and the council was directed to invite all Hellenic cities whom it seemed possible to approach on the matter to send first-fruits likewise. End of chapter 11 Part 1 Chapter 11, Part 2 The Western Policy of Athens During the 5th century, the eyes of Athenian statesmen often wandered to western Greece beyond the seas. We can surprise some oblique glances as early as the days of Themistocles, and we have seen how under Pericles, a Western policy definitely began. An alliance was formed with the Illimian town of Segesta, and subsequently treaties of alliance, the stone records are still partly preserved, were concluded, as has been already mentioned, with Leontini and Regium. One general object of Athens was to support the Ionian cities against the Dorian, which were predominant in number and power, and especially against Syracuse, the daughter and friend of Corinth. The same purpose of counteracting the Dorian predominance may be detected in the foundation of Thurii, but Thurii did not effect this purpose. The colonists were a mixed body, other than Athenian elements gained the upper hand, and in the end Thurii became rather a Dorian centre and was no support to Athens. It is to be observed that at the time of the foundation of Thurii, and for nigh thirty years more, Athens is seeking merely influence in the West. She has no thought of dominion. The growth of her connection with Italian and Sicilian affairs was forced upon her by the conditions of commerce and the rivalry of Corinth. The treaties with Leontini and Regium had led to no immediate interference in Sicily on the part of the Athenians. The first action came six years later on an appeal for help from both cities. Leontini was struggling to preserve her independence against Syracuse, her southern neighbour. 
all the Dorian cities, with the exception of Acragas and Camarina, were on the side of Syracuse, while Leontini had the support of Regium, Catani, Naxos, and Camarina. The continued independence of the Ionian element in western Greece might seem to be seriously at stake. The embassy of the Leontines was accompanied by the greatest of their citizens, Gorgias, the professor of eloquence, whose fame and influence were pan-Hellenic. We may well believe that when the embassy arrived, the Athenians were far more interested in the great man than in his mission, that they thronged in excitement to the assembly, caring little what he said, but much how he said it. His eloquence, indeed, was hardly needed to win a favourable answer. Athens was convinced of the expediency of bringing Sicily within the range of her politics. It was important to hinder corn and other help being conveyed from thence to her Peloponnesian enemies. It was important to prevent Syracuse, the friend of Corinth, from raising her head too high, and already adventurous imaginations may have pressed beyond the thought of Athenian influence and dreamed of Athenian dominion in the West. Hyperbolus seems to have especially interested himself in the development of a policy in the Western Mediterranean. Aristophanes ridicules him for contemplating an enterprise against Carthage herself. An expedition was sent out under the command of Laches. It achieved little, but, if it had been followed up, might have led to much. Masana was induced to join Athens, who thus obtained free navigation of the straits. The old alliance with Sergesta was renewed, but a severe check was experienced in an attempt to take Inessa. The poor success of this expedition must partly, at least, be set down to the dishonesty of the general Laches and his treasurer. Cleone seems to have called Laches to account for his defalcations on his return, and a comic poet jested how Laches ate up the Sicilian cheese, Sicily was famous for her cheeses, with the help of his treasurer, the cheese grater. The episode of Pylos and the operations at Corsaira may fairly be regarded as causes which ruined Athenian prospects in Sicily. For these affairs detained the fleet which was bound for the west under the command of Eurymedon and Sophocles, and the delay led to the loss of the one thing which the expedition of Laches had gained, the adhesion of Masana. This city, cleft by adverse political parties, revolted, and the fleet, when at last it came, accomplished nothing worthy of record. Its coming seems rather to have been the occasion for the definite shaping of a movement among almost all the Sicilian states towards peace, a movement unfavourable to the Athenian designs. When the Athenian generals invited the cities to join in the war against Syracuse, they were answered by the gathering of a congress at Gila, where delegates from all the Siceliot cities met to discuss the situation and consider the possibility of peace. The man who took the most prominent part at this remarkable congress was Hermocrates of Syracuse. He developed what has been justly described as a Siceliot policy. 
Sicily is a world by itself, with its own interests and politics, and the Greeks outside Sicily should be considered as strangers, and not permitted to make or meddle in the affairs of the island. Let the Sicilian cities settle their own differences among themselves, but combine to withstand intervention from Athens or any other external power. Thus the policy of Hermocrates was neither local nor panhellenic, but Siciliate. It has been compared to the Monroe Doctrine of the United States. The policy, indeed, was never realized, and we shall see that Hermocrates himself was driven by circumstances to become eminently untrue to the doctrine which he preached. But the Congress of Gila was not a failure. The policy of peace prevented at the time any serious Athenian intervention. Soon afterwards, a sedition was disastrous to Leontini. Its oligarchs became Syracusan citizens. Leontini ceased to exist as a city and became a Syracusan fortress. Such an incident, following so hard upon the pacification which Syracusan diplomacy had helped to bring about, must have produced a strange impression on the Siceliots. It seemed clear that Syracuse wanted to get rid of the Athenians only for the purpose of tyrannizing over her neighbors. Athens was again invited to intervene, and she did intervene, but not seriously or effectually, and it was not till the year of the conquest of Milos that she resumed her active interest in the politics of Western Hellas. End of chapter 11, part 2